0: blog talk radio Well, I'm not sure if the introduction music played or not, but I am just going to move on. <laughs> hoping that everything is okay welcome to teach me to talk the podcast i'm lara Mize, pediatric speech language pathologist and i'm so happy you joined me today today we're continuing a series that i started four weeks ago so today is the fifth show in my series 11 skills toddlers must use before words emerge and we are talking about skill number two today which is responds to people Let me just begin by saying I cannot overstate or overemphasize the importance of this skill in helping a late talking toddler learn to communicate. And here's why. Communicating always involves at least two people. So when we have a child who doesn't routinely and consistently respond, when you try to talk to him, when you want to play with him, when you try to do anything with him, it makes it virtually impossible to know for sure that he is learning anything. And let's just take an example, just a really, really common example. Let's think about a kid who doesn't yet respond to his name. And that becomes pretty problematic, especially as the child gets closer and closer to two. Uh, a lot of parents kind of miss. Take the lack of response for he's purposefully choosing to ignore me, or he's just really, really stubborn, or he's just a stinker because he's two, or all the different things that we say. And some of those things may be true, but, but many, many, many times it's because that core skill of responding to people is not... Firmly established. And so today we're going to talk about how important this skill is and and the things that you can do, the simple things, the common sense, everyday things that you may have tried a little bit in the past if you're a parent and listening to this, or if you're a therapist. you know, you certainly talk to parents about it or you, we try to address these things in therapy, but sometimes we aren't focused enough or we, again, fall back on that this not responding to other people is somehow a choice that a child is making. And if that's if that's been your opinion about your own child again, I will never know. Your baby, like you do, but at the same time, we can't just Assume that he or she is, again, deliberately blowing you off. We have to always, always, always go back and make sure that we are doing everything in our power to help a child no matter how old he is, a baby, a toddler, a preschooler, even a school age kid who, who has some significant developmental delays. And that's certainly that that's beyond the scope of this show. This show's focused on early intervention, so children in that birth to three, or, you know, perhaps even up to four and a half, five, children in that range. And again, sometimes when you think about a show like toddlers Use before words emerge, you may be thinking, yeah, 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 yeah. That's so simple. My kid's not talking, but that's not it. And, again, if this does, if this show is not applicable to your child, good for you. <laughs> I am happy that your child is further along than this. But this is a real problem, especially for our little friends who go on to be diagnosed with autism. Not responding or a lack of responding or something that's that's different in how a child responds to people is a core deficit of autism. So it's something that therapists see in children all the time. Uh, who are late talkers or who are suspected to have some red flags for autism even before they get that official diagnosis. And it's certainly one of the first things I'm looking at as soon as I hit the door with a kid, as soon as I'm walking in that home or they're walking in to see me or wherever I happen to be treating a child or frankly in the grocery store or Walmart or Target or wherever, church, wherever you go. That's something I'm constantly looking for with children because it's a it's a big 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 red flag when that skill is missing so again if this is not um, you know if this is not something you're super concerned about that's fantastic but for those parents who are listening who are thinking hmm I don't know sometimes he responds to me and sometimes it seems like he's avoiding me or ignoring me. Or sometimes the parent will say something like, you know, it's just like he can't even hear. And you know that he can because you've already ruled that out. We talked a lot about that last week, how important ruling out medical or uh, sensory impairments such as hearing problems, vision problems. We talked about that last week. And so if you haven't gotten that done and if you have a child who really is inconsistent, about particularly about looking at you when you are really trying to get their attention or, or even, let's say, they're across the room and, and they just hardly ever respond unless you make a big, big, big effort on your part to get their attention, go ahead and get their hearing checked just to rule it out. Now, sometimes parents are kind of relieved <laughs> You know when it comes back, they're like, "Oh, it's not hearing loss, you know, uh, you know, and that's and they should be. I mean, that's that's not what I'm trying to say here, but i but I am trying to say hearing loss is uh, a bona fide reason that children don't talk. So be sure that you are addressing that and ruling that out. And again, if you didn't hear last week's show and you suspect that or you want to hear more about that, go back and listen to that, that show number two seventy eight. But today, we're talking about children for whom there's not a problem with hearing there's not a problem with any other um, again something that we can address medically like a vision problem those kinds of things and by medically I mean that you're going to the optometrist to get their vision checked, or the ophthalmologist really and you'll you'll correct their vision with glasses but um, you know there's when I say medical intervention there's no pill of course or anything like that all right so here we go let's talk about responding to people and let me just give you an idea let's just kind of back this up a little bit and think about newborns newborns come into this world hardwired to look at people's faces do you remember that when your baby was first born and do you remember holding him or her in your lap and you know they were so tiny and you held their little head in your hands and they learned how to focus on your face, and oh, what an endearing little experience that is, and you feel such a sweet little connection, and that emotional bond begins to build, and it is just rapturous I, I love that time in a baby's development, and then they get a little older and start to move around and aren't aren't quite as enthralled <laughs> with looking at you as they were and here's where here's what happens with children who are going to eventually be diagnosed with autism or for kids who are even kind of borderline, they're suspected to, you know, have a a developmental issue that goes beyond late talking. You know, there's more going on there with their delays. Sometime researchers say around that six to nine month level is where there begins to be a definitive difference in how, Babies who are developing typically and babies who have developmental delays or red flags for developmental delays begin to uh, or when you're looking at them you can see a difference in how they respond to people and so it's a big deal guys when a kid wants to just be by himself or when he this is how parents will say it they'll say he does his own thing you know he really would prefer to just be alone or it's really hard to direct him or get his attention because he's just off doing whatever he wants to do And again, sometimes parents will characterize that as stubbornness or laziness or um, sometimes parents kind of go the other way and think, oh, he's just so busy with what he's thinking about in his little brain that he can't really pay attention to other people and say, that's probably not it. It's really, really, really back to this core skill. Of responding to people, and again, a lot of times parents will say, "You know, I really wasn't worried about this until he got closer to his first birthday, and then I realized that he didn't know his name, or you know, some I, I was, we were with other people, and it was just so hard to get his attention, and you know, there were other kids there, and they were trying to play with me. I would talk to them, and they would, they would seem to um, ignore." the other kids would play with me, but my kid would seem to ignore other people and I started to kind of notice a difference there. Um, and so that's, that's when parents will first begin to suspect that not only that there's a problem with late talking, but that there's a problem that that's bigger than that. Okay, so here's the good news. So we've kind of set the stage for how important this skill is, how foundational it is, how it's the very, very first, real things i start to really assess and look for with a child but here's the good news you can make this better you can i see it time and time and time again and sometimes parents will say i didn't realize how little he looked at me and interacted with me until now You know, before, I didn't think that was that big of a problem. I didn't think it was something that we should even worry about. Frankly, Laura, I didn't even notice that until you pointed that out. But then once we really, really get this skill going and once parents see how engaged their child can be and how how often they make eye contact, how often they start to share these little expressions with you. I have a little guy that I'm working with right now who's on the spectrum, who's turning four. And I've worked with him for, um, evaluated him when he was right at two, just a single-time visit just to give the parents some recommendations, and then started to work with him weekly about a year later uh, he turned after he had turned three. So I've seen him now from July until it's February. So that many months. And he's just now... <laughs> It's taken this long with all of the things we're going to talk about today and our other strategies of social games and structured teaching and really kind of meeting him where he is with his developmental level and teaching the parent his parents to do the things we talked about today and with therapy. And he's going now to an ABA model preschool. All of that time, it took that long until the last couple of sessions in these last couple of weeks, he started to have what I call twinkly eyes. If you're a therapist, I don't know if you use that term, but it's really, really important to me because to me when I could get a kid who's real bright, bright-eyed bright in his face and he's just kind of making a cute little expression, this little guy kind of does a little twitch with his lips and he'll kind of move his head a little bit like, hmm, did you see me do that? Whoa, did you did you see me? Especially when he's doing a new task. And again, we're doing a lot of structured teaching, which is beyond the scope of this show. And we'll talk about that in a later episode within this series but he's really really learning to do fantastic things that he's never ever been able to do before and and just in the last couple of weeks uh, you know, I'm working with him and mom is right there doing actually most of the treatment because he so prefers her interaction to mine. And that that's fine. You know, but I want him to be super, super, super connected to his mom. And I want his mom to be the lead therapist for him and the lead person with this team because, you know, I'm only there an hour weekly or every other week with how crazy my schedule is. And mom is who has taken, mom and dad, had taken the reins and done all, all this hard work for months and months and months now. And it's really beginning to pay off because now he is looking at us. And he's even looking at me. And, again, he doesn't like me all the time. <laughs> and we're developing a better relationship now. But at the beginning, boy, was it touch and go. But he is now to the point where he is uh, – smiling at me more. He certainly is looking at me a lot more often than he did, including me, letting me sit beside him, letting me help him do some things without really falling apart, just such a nice, nice, nice change in this arena of social skills. And so I love it. Again, when you see a kid that you think, oh, he's pretty flat. That's just how he is. He's just never really going to pay attention to me. He's just busy with other things. Guys, you can work on this and make this better. And actually, I just get so concerned when I'll read a report. You know, I get to do a lot of consulting now and seeing children for a second opinion, a third opinion, a 14th opinion when they've seen a lot of other people or they already have an established team and I'm just extra and and giving parents additional things they can do. So just kind of a one-time shot thing. And I, I just get so concerned when I read therapy plans for a child, again, who has big red flags for autism and there is not one mention of social engagement or interaction or, or it may be, um, they may have mentioned something like eye contact or joint attention, but no um, real expansion on that and how important that is to parents and they just, the therapist seem to seems to have missed what's really, really, really going on and they're trying to work on things that are well down the road for that kid. And, frankly, that includes words. You know, we can't really work on talking or helping a child, or, or even comprehension, helping a child learn what words mean yet when he really doesn't have the ability to consistently respond, when he doesn't enjoy interacting with other people. So this is really, really, really where therapy should begin. Anytime we even, there's a hint of a social interaction problem. This is where we should begin our treatment. Okay, so let's talk about the kinds of things that I recommend to parents when we are are addressing this and when we are looking at this uh, with them and getting these strategies going. And again, you're going to hear some of these things and you, you might say, gosh, that's so simplistic. You know, as a therapist, you might parents already know that. I I don't want to talk down to them. I don't want to make them feel poorly about how they are already doing. I don't want to provide a lot of suggestions for changing them. I'm really there to change the kid. Throw that out the window because we have got to start with really basic strategies for parents and here's the truth too when we go back all the way back to kind of a really foundational beginning level like this you're not how i feel about it is we're covering all our bases we're doing everything we can and it prevents mistakes down the road because this is this happened to me this is a something that happened that's kind of related to this uh it's not about social interaction it's about another skill But let me just give you this example. And this was way back like in 1998, 1999, when I had first gone into private practice and was was, um, first beginning to really specialize. And I'm only going to see children in early intervention. And I'm only really going to focus on that. And that's my primary responsibility here. And I'm not going to do any of these other things or populations anymore. And so I was working with a set of parents, both highly educated. Both were college professors. So super, super family, just loved working with them. And I go in, and the little guy's about two. And uh, he had other therapists on his team, this fantastic developmental therapist, also working with him, had an OT. He was already saying a few words. And because of that, and he he understood some really simple commands too. And so we really did jump right into language. And he was fairly connected, especially for a little guy with autism. But again, this was way back when I didn't know as much as I know now. And so I didn't pay enough attention to these foundational things. And so we jumped kind of straight to words. And his DT, after about the third week, uh, really early, I went went back, you know, early and kind of hit my time with him, so I'd only seen him a couple times, and I go in, and his mom and dad were so excited, and they said, Laura, you will never guess what he can do, and I, you know, was just, standing there with, you know, wide eyes, like, leaning forward, like, what? Tell me, tell me. And they said, he's signing. He's signing, more. And please. Have you ever signed with children? Do you realize what a great, great strategy that's been for us? Oh, my gosh. I wanted just to drop my toy bag, you know, on the floor and just uh, kick myself, Because I missed that. You know, I felt like even then, hey, I'm the queen of teaching kids how to sign. (laughs) I do this better than anybody. But I didn't do it with him, and I jumped too far forward. And you know what was even worse? I didn't talk to his parents about it. And I let another therapist kind of scoop me on that. And let me just say, that has rarely (laughs) happened again. Because that taught me the value of starting even at the beginning, when you when you're not even quite sure you know we, or when you think when you think, "Oh, we can move beyond this," backing that little guy up to signs was a fantastic strategy for him. He really took off after that. And so this is not what we're talking about today. We're talking about responding to people and strategies that we're going to teach parents about that. But my point is those highly educated people, highly educated parents, I really, really assumed, oh, they're just going to want to move straight to words. And you already understand some things, so that's developmentally appropriate, yada, 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 without really, really realizing I have got to be thorough and consistent with what I am talking to parents about and sharing strategies and teaching strategies with parents. So here's my point. Here's how we tie it back to this story. As a therapist, you have to start with these really basic and you might include simple things that unless you tell a parent, they're not realizing that you're even really doing it. A lot of times I talk to parents, well, let me just say nearly all of the time, no matter what I'm seeing a kid for, but especially when he or she has difficulty responding to other people, my number one recommendation to them is always, you have got to get down on that child's level. And I say this a lot in my DVD, Teach Me To Talk, you've got to play on the floor with them because that's where children are. Now, sometimes a parent will say, I'm too old, my back hurts, my knees hurt, or I'm too fat to sit on the floor. And I always say, you know, me too. (laughs) But we just have to do it. We have to get down there so that they have more of an opportunity to look at us and include us and respond to us. I saw this video one time on Facebook or Twitter or somewhere, and it was several years ago when I was still device dependent and still doing a lot of that social media stuff all day, every day. Thankfully, I've kicked that habit. But I saw this great video of this mom who was who illustrated how it looks and sounds to a child to be in an adult's world all day. And so the, the camera was from the child's perspective so that he – when the, it's obvious the mom is talking to him, but he's looking at her knees, at her jeans. <laughs> and she, um, you know, is standing there trying to talk to him. Who knows if he's looking at her or not? You know, we can't really – See that because again the camera is on the child's perspective but then it was just fantastic when the, the shot showed her bending down and getting you know sitting down on her knees so that she is right there eye to eye face to face with presumably the child. And so it was just a perfect illustration of that. So I talk to parents about that all the time. And when I did home visits for years and years and years, sometimes the first time or two that I was there, the parents would say, you know, I would just kick off shoes and sit on the floor. And parents would kind of be surprised by that and offer me a chair or say, gosh, you know, you really can sit on our furniture. And I would have to say, no, this is purposeful, I want him to be able to notice me. And the best way for me to ensure that is to put myself within his line of vision. So you have to talk about that with parents. And, again, don't just assume as a therapist that because a parent sees you sitting on the floor that they understand that they should be doing a lot of that too. They don't get it, guys, sometimes unless you say it. Or they they know that you're doing it, but they don't understand why. And so you have to fill in those gaps and tell parents exactly what you're doing and exactly why you're doing it so they understand that they should be doing it too and what a valuable, valuable strategy that is. And I'll just say, you're you're just a heck of a lot more likely to have a child look at you, respond to you, pay attention to you when you are right in his or her little face. <laughs> and so you want to be sure you're doing that. Now, sometimes that's hard because we have really, really busy kids, you know, and they don't ever stay in one place. And so, you know, Gosh, it's so funny. I'll end up kind of knee-walking across the floor to keep up with them. Do you know what I mean by knee-walking? That's where I I don't get up on my feet. I kind of just walk on my knees so I can kind of chase them around the room that way because I'm still on their level. That has gotten harder (laughs) as the years have gone by. But here's my point with this. You want to place yourself, especially with a busy kid, for where a child is more likely to look. And let me just talk for a minute about kids with autism. Sometimes they really can't take the intensity of that face-to-face contact at first. And you may get better eye contact and better responsiveness from them if you are a little further away. With some kids, I've noticed that especially kids, again, who were on the spectrum and have more significant challenges with this area, they may look at me better when I'm really across the room and I'm moving. So it's like I get their attention in their visual field and I kind of catch them looking at me. And when that's happening, I'm always sure to kind of zone in and then try to get closer to them when that happens. You know, I almost have to kind of back away and then move in. And that's just part of developing your instincts with a child. And as a parent, you kind of already know that. You know, how, when your kid looks at you when he's more likely to look at you. You know what that's right when you're sitting right beside him. And sometimes that that sitting beside a child is a lot less, um, well, intense. I've already used that word. But for some children, especially uh, kids with autism, they have social uh, sensory issues, meaning that when it, it's just a little bit uncomfortable for you to be right there right in their faces. It's not as pleasurable as children with typically developing social skills. And so sometimes, you know, when you try to get that face-to-face, and they are obviously avoiding you, you know, looking away, trying to get away from you, doing everything they can, switch to kind of a side-to-side position because that's a lot less threatening. That's probably not the best word, but it's an easier way for them to let you be with him without feeling so uncomfortable when you hear adults with autism talk about things like eye contact or that intense kind of face-to-face interaction they'll say that and they'll use words like uncomfortable threatening, confrontational when they talk about maintaining eye contact. It's just not very pleasant for them. They don't get the same kind of warm, fuzzy feeling that most of us get when we have a connection with another person and we're making, again, that that real personal eye contact, you know, that right there, that togetherness feeling. They they don't have, sometimes they they don't experience that to the degree, or, or it's just so different from for them, but their experience is different with that because they're, they're wired differently. And the same thing can be said for our little guys. Now, sometimes I've seen parents who, when we start talking about eye contact and responding and stuff, they'll just try to go a little bit militant. And I bet as a therapist you've wanted to do this too. You just want to take a kid's face and make him look at you. <laughs> you want to put your hands on either side of his cheeks and turn his little face like, you will look at me and you will look at me now. That's not what we want to do here, okay? I always say to parents, give a child a reason to include you. So give him a reason to look at you. So that does not involve physically putting your hands on him and making him do it, okay? So you've got to make yourself look fun, which means that you need to make your face bright. Do you know what I mean by that? Like not flat your eyes get bigger, you're smiling, you're looking right at the child. You do everything you can to make yourself look so inviting and warm and fun and easy to be with. And, again, all of those things that are going to be really pleasurable experiences for that child. The other thing you can do is use your voice to direct a kid's attention to you, so you have to make yourself sound fun, too. Uh, last week, I got to speak at the Kentucky Speech um Hearing Annual Convention, and I love doing Kisha. I've done it. This is, gosh, my probably fourth time to speak there since 2010. So I love it, and again, I'm the hometown girl, so, you know, in your own state to speak, so much fun. And the, uh, there were a group of professors, women, from Murray State, which is a university over in the western part of Kentucky, and they were talking to me after the presentation, and they were talking about some graduate students that they supervised, and they were just kind of giving me examples from the presentation and saying, oh, we've heard you before, but we always come back because we always get good things, so that we can teach our uh Students in the graduate program for speech pathology, the same kinds of things that are so practical and so simple, and sometimes the things that we forget to teach students. You know, we're so worried about all the academic things and the theory that sometimes we don't get to the down and dirty, here's how you do it practical thing. And so they were talking about being fun, and they, <laughs> the one of the ladies said that she just uh, observed a session and had a student, and that the student, she had talked to her, student to say and by student I mean that this is the speech pathologist in training so someone who's in her 20s probably you know she already has a bachelor's degree she's there getting her master's degree and she said that she had talked to her about lightening up in sessions and really playing and having a good time and she said so the grad student would say with the child this is so fun this is so fun just like that, so pretty flat. I'm probably not doing it justice because I really I don't, I have a hard time sounding flat. And so <laughs> it makes me think about that. You know, you can't just phone it in. You can't just, you can't fake it. But you've got to give here to make yourself look fun and sound fun. So she should have been saying what? You know, ooh, so fun. We're having such a good time. I love it. You know, those kinds of things. Even if a kid can't understand your words yet, he gets that emotion, and again, that helps establish that connection that interaction that engagement piece that's what you want and so a lot of times just making yourself making an effort to make yourself be more exciting to be with is 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 the key it's it's what it's what begins the process of a child really starting to make progress when you change yourself and do everything you can to um, give a child a reason to look at you. Let's go back to the last tip for just a second where I talked about placing, placing yourself where the child is more likely to look at you. Let's turn that around a little bit. Sometimes we can place the child where he's more likely to look at you. And let me give you a great example of this. Sometimes if I'm working with a kid and they're not very busy that day, meaning they're not running all around the room and jumping off the furniture and swinging from the lights and all the things that our little friends like to do, Sometimes if we're doing an activity that they really, really like, but I'm still having trouble getting that eye contact and, you know, and again, I've done everything I can. I'm on his or her level. I'm placing myself within his line of vision, meaning that, you know, sometimes we have to bend over and get our face right down there. Or if a kid's playing with a toy really intently, I'll try to get on the other side of the toy so that when he looks at the toy, he is sort of looking at me too because I am right there within an inch of it. That's why a lot of times therapists will hold toys up to their faces because the child will look at the toy and is more likely to then, you know, it's kind of sometimes like he'll say, aha, I didn't know you were there, <laughs> you know, because they haven't really looked at you or, or don't routinely search for your face or or even aren't interested in seeing your reactions. So doing things like that work. The other thing that I was going to mention Uh, That I started this story with is sometimes if we're playing with a toy on the floor and I really can't get a kid's attention, and he's he or or he's just so focused on the toy and he's having such a great time that he forgets to include me. Sometimes I'll put the kid and up on like a table, so if there's a coffee table there or a couch where he's sitting on the couch, but I'm still on the floor. And that, again, gets me right on his level. I'm not having to throw out my back to bend over and do all the gymnastic moves (laughs) to get down as low as I need to be, especially if he's playing with something with his hands there on the floor and he's even a little crouched over. That's kind of hard. When I was in my 20s and 30s, I would routinely, you know, lay down on my stomach. But, again, don't do that as much anymore that I'm knocking on the door a fifty you know, as I did when I was younger. So doing things like that, though, putting them, putting the child up a little bit so that you're still on the floor, that's pretty effective. Another thing you might do is hold the kid so that he's sitting on your lap. That makes it a lot more likely. And you can do that if you're playing social games like we're going to talk about in a minute. That's a great strategy, too. Uh, sometimes the therapist will put a kid in a high chair because he's you know, not mobile anymore. You've socked him in there and buckle that little seat belt. and especially with kids who are really, really busy, you know. And, I, I, you know, I've used a high chair occasionally. I always kind of say, I'm not a high chair therapist. But I have had some children who really like being in the high chair and who like I think that feeling of stability and safety. So that's not always the wrong thing to do, but for the great majority of children that we see, we really don't want them belted in. We want them to learn to look at us because, you know, without kind of being forced to uh, or stay with us without that, that uh, totally corralling them. But sometimes it is necessary. So if you're a therapist and you have 20 kids on your caseload and you're seeing 18 of them in the high chair, probably not a good strategy so for those children who really do have the ability to stay with you and play with you and engage with you and look at you when they're not belted in i would highly advise that you start moving that along a little bit but for occasionally you are going to have a kid who will do better in that kind of situation okay so we've talked about tip let get down on his or her level second tip place yourself or the child where they're most likely to look at you That. A fancier name for that is called environmental modification. (laughs) Third recommendation here is give a child a reason to include you, which remember that means make yourself look and sound fun. So give him a reason to look at you. You've got to be more exciting than the wall or the ceiling fan or the, the show on TV. You have to be an object of interest. And again, that's just... That's easy to change. That's you're changing yourself. You're not having the kid really do anything yet. It's, it's about you, and you can e- much more easily change yourself than you can a child. Fourth recommendation here for helping a child learn how to respond to you, do what he likes. And, again, sometimes this is a no-brainer, or parents somehow or therapists, gosh, will somehow think, oh, I've got to teach him how to pay attention to things he doesn't like. And yeah, or you know non preferred activities that's what I'll see written on plans that's important. That comes later when we're first working with a kid, especially when he's having difficulty responding. You have to do everything you can to make it worth it for him because if he if he could respond to you more consistently, he would. So there's obviously something else going on there. So you you begin by setting the stage to make success really really possible and likely. So do what he likes. So if you know that he hates coloring on paper, don't color on paper. If you know that he loves playing in water, play in water. If he loves to eat, use snacks. You know, hold that cookie right up by your face when you're talking with him about it and saying, Ooh, are you hungry? Time to eat? You know you've got you're giving him a reason to look at you by sheer virtue of holding what he wants and being the giver of good things. Okay? So do what he likes, especially at the beginning. Now, sometimes a the therapist might say, oh, he's going to leave me out if I use something that he likes because he's just going to focus on that. I get it. And if there really, really is a huge problem with that and you can't figure out a way to get yourself in there, I can totally see you not using something that is his very, very, very favorite thing that he just cannot divert his attention from. But you should be doing things that he's interested in. And things that he wants to pay attention to, because again, you want him to associate you with with things that are fun and with things that he wants to do. And that's another thing. Sometimes therapists will say, "You know, well, I've got to teach him. I've got to, I've got to, you know, get showing something new. You know, why in the world am I going to start with something he already knows? Because that's what we do. We start at the beginning. We start at the foundation there. And and, and we, how many of you like to do? How many of you? enjoy doing things you don't like i mean that's opposite right that's an kind of like an oxymoron it's that's silly to say so start with what he likes all right and i've already kind of beat that horse so we're not going (laughs) to continue on with that but that that's a good point with a lot of parents because they'll think oh you know we're going to do a book we're going to look at a book and i'll say does he like books and they'll say no but shouldn't i be doing books and i'll say not yet (laughs) If he doesn't like it, we are not going to do it yet. We need to figure out what he likes and use that first. And, again, there's some other variables here, some other things you can manipulate and work with and decide if it's really going to work or not. But we're just talking about the basics and, and especially what we want to share with parents and a Especially, especially what we use in those first few sessions to really establish that relationship with the child and that social connection. And, again, that's so important for teaching them how to respond to other people. They have to like you and want to be with you. So you, of course, a common sense. You know, my grandmother would have said, well, don't do something he doesn't like. Start with what he loves. So that's my fourth tip. Okay, fifth recommendation here for helping a child learn to respond to you emphasize interaction over every other goal no matter what you're doing with that child or what you're working on or what little daily routine you're involved in so that interaction piece and what do i mean by that again we're talking about responding here but how does that look what does that mean that means he's looking at you so eye contact like we've already talked about closeness meaning that he's not trying to get away from you he's not fighting you he wants to sit right beside you he wants to um, do what you're doing. He wants you there. He's not pushing you away. He he He's enjoying you. So emphasize that interaction. And again, this would be important no matter what you're doing. That would mean at bath time you're emphasizing interaction with you. At When you're changing his diaper, you want him looking at you and paying attention to you and responding to you and including you. And here, again, let me just say I haven't said this yet. Responding doesn't mean answering a question yet. We're just meaning all these things that we're talking about, that joint attention piece. We talked about that a little bit in the introductory show, so go back and listen to that. And we're going to talk about it a lot uh, coming up that is Skill number four, so we'll get to that in a couple of weeks, this is skill number two, but joint attention, meaning shifting attention. He can have his toy and y'all are playing it together and he's looking at you and the toy and you and the toy and you and the toy so that you're both a big focus of his attention. But here, again, you're going to emphasize the interaction over anything else. You're not really expecting him to pop out a word yet, although that's fantastic when that happens. But my point is just getting a consistent response, nonverbal response. He doesn't have to do anything other than look at you and obviously enjoy his time with you. So You're going to prioritize interaction, prioritize engagement, whether it's at snack time, whether you're playing with a toy, whether you're outside sliding or running, or whether you're – In the car, he's in the car seat, and you're driving your SUV, but you're turning around and looking at him. You know, no matter what you are doing, you are focused on, I am going to get him to include me and notice me and like me, (laughs) And uh, want to listen to my words. Because, again, when a kid, it looks like a kid is ignoring you and avoiding you, do you think he's really listening and understanding your words? Probably not. It starts with this. This is where language development starts. Okay. Number six. I've said this before on the show, and I try to say it in almost every live course that I teach. It's on every DVD I've ever published, and I've written about it, but I'm going to say it again. Play, 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 play. And when you are sick of all that, you better play some more. (laughs) Playing with a kid is what really, really gets us going. And I've just talked about how we emphasize interaction during all kinds of daily activities like bath time and changing and eating and getting dressed and all that. But, guys, you've got to play. You really do. And sometimes the parent will say, well, we just do not have time for that. I am busy. I work. I, you know, I get up in the morning and I get myself completely ready and then I usually have about 15 minutes with him So, and I think, gosh, 15 minutes, that's not very long to get a kid up, get him dressed, feed him, and then get out the door. You've got to have time. You've got to have that one-on-one time. And again, I'm not bashing working moms. I have been a working mother forever. So I'm not saying that, but I am saying that, you know, and I understand time constraints and busy, busy, busy lives, but you have got to make time for play. We've already talked about getting down on the floor. We've already talked about doing what he likes. Those are natural, you know, playing is a natural extension of that. So you've got to get out some toys. You've got to get out, and it, it may not be a toy. It might be a blanket. It might be something like peek-a-boo. It might be you, uh, him, and it may not look like a traditional peek game. A little guy that I was talking about a minute ago has a big, Comforter that he l lo- he'll drag it out from his bedroom, and boy, he hides under that, you know, and he's not just sitting there perfectly still and putting the blanket over his head, and his mom pulls it off and says peekaboo no 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 no, that's not how we play, you know he's rolling around under it and you know laying on his belly and on his back, and it's kind of all over, and again that comforter's pretty big from his bed uh but it it's the same kind of game you know we're still saying you know where's true where's true you know and then getting him so you know and lifting the blanket up and tickling him and doing all that you've got to play and you really don't even have to have you know we talked about the blanket you don't even have to have a toy you can play a little game like ride a little horsey where you're bouncing that child on your knees you're holding its hands and you're singing you know ride a little see to town watch out logan don't fall down and then you let him fall to the the floor, what's the kid's part there? His part is just to have a good time and hold your hands, right? <laughs> so no toy involved there. You are the toy as the adult, so super, super, super way to get those first interactions going uh, and I just I love social games to target this kind of goal but I, I wanted to be sure that before we even begin to talk about this social game piece which is so important and i have based so much of my career and my professional writing on helping people understand how to play social games and how valuable they are but guys don't miss the first five things that we talked about the get down on his or her level place yourself where the kid or is more likely to look at you. Replace the kid where he's more likely to look at you. Give a kid a reason to look at you. Do what he likes. Emphasize interaction. If you're not doing those things, you shouldn't start on social games yet because these the first five are so easily incorporated into everyday events. And parents are already doing, a lot of times, some of these things or most of these things, but they're just not doing it often enough because they don't know how important it is. So I really don't talk to parents about social games until we have these other pieces going and are um, firmly established and again I may play some little games in therapy and give them some recommendations for playing the games and that's fantastic but I don't do it until we have started to talk about these other things and how how you can get a kid to pay more attention to you and include you and respond to you more at bath time which of course is going to be Getting down on his level, which means that you're seated, you know, beside the tub, and most of us do that anyway when we're giving a child a bath. We certainly did it when they were babies. When they're toddlers, we get a, maybe get a little braver, and aren't just you know right, you know, so closely guarding them at the tub like we did. But it's still really really important to get down there. I mean, you've got to wash them anyway, right? So using that time to incorporate these kinds of strategies, or when we're feeding a child, you know, it's not just writing, that we're both focused on the TV when we're doing it. You know, we really need to try to enjoy each other and have that as a time where we can really, really work on this responding piece. So my point here is don't forget to talk about these. If you're a therapist, talk about the the first five recommendations before you start really harping on these social games. But social games are so fun. And, again, I've based a lot of my career on teaching people how to do this. I have a great book called Teach Me to Play With You, and it gives step-by-step-by-step instructions for at least 50 little games and songs and finger plays and then other easy play routines like playing with balls, playing with blocks, those kinds of things. So it can really walk you through that process. If you're a therapist, it may give you some new ideas and will also teach you how to sequentially use a social game to help a child make more progress and begin to participate with us and that's a little bit beyond the scope of this goal today we're just talking about responding but but that's what it leads to eventually we want a child to do his or her part in a social game so let's just back up a little bit we were talking about peekaboo and how fun peekaboo is for most kids especially parents are really into it and you do everything you can to make it super super exciting so, which again doesn't always mean that you're calmly sitting there with a little blanket or a little cloth diaper over your face or head. You know, you could use a pillow. You could be behind a door. Um, you know, you could use the big blanket or afghan that's in the den, right? So, those are kind of, those kinds of things are fun with that, and you can get that going. But over time, you help a parent see. You know, the first goal really is just that the kid. Will with you and play with you and participate and respond and hear what would the response look like at the beginning he'll smile he'll laugh he wants to do it again but eventually what do we want the kid to do well we want him to while they're covered up you want to see some evidence under that blanket that they know that the blankets going to come off so that's that's a goal that's the next little step what would the what would the next goal be with participation about that the kid takes the, tries to remove the blanket himself, right? That's doing his part. What would the next goal be? Again, it might be initiating that next turn where he then he covers himself up again. And what would the next goal be? It might be that he brings you the blanket to play, or that he tries to do everything he can to get your attention so that you know that he wants to play that game. I've had this happen before where I'm working with a family and I'm talking to mom and we're just over kind of talking about something related to therapy and, you know, she's giving me um, some information about her child or giving me an update or whatever and I look over and the kid's under the blanket (laughs) because he wants to play peekaboo, but he's done nothing (laughs) to let us know, hey, come on, play with me. You know, no noise, no bringing us the blanket. He just kind of expected us to notice and to catch up and to want to play. And that's fantastic. But looking at this continuum of progress here and what goal would come next, That would be a perfect thing to work on, is initiation. How do I begin, as the kid, on the kid's part, how do I begin this game with you? Mom, how how do I approach my mom to let her know that, hey, this is fun for me, and I want to do it again and again and again, and I want you to stop what you're doing, drop everything, and play with me? And that initiation piece certainly comes later. That's, gosh, I think skill number 10 or 11 that we're going to talk about in this series. Yes, skill number 10. And we'll get there. But can you see how how you can't really work on initiating if a child doesn't respond to you? And so how this skill really supersedes or comes is more important, comes before everything else you're gonna teach a kid. So responding is huge. All right, so I've given you some ideas about the the play 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 piece. You know, social games, ride a little horsey, peekaboo, row, row your boat where you put them on your legs and you rock back and forth. Um Other games that you might play where it's really fun for the kid to play with you, even something like jumping on a bed where you're counting, you're holding hands while you, you know, maybe you count to three or five or ten or, you know, however many numbers you can get to before the kid loses interest. And then you plop them down on the bed and kind of make them fall. Or they can jump into your arms. Anything like that can be a social game. Any any sequence of events that you do in the same way every single time and you are saying the same things every single time that's a social game okay so huge 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 piece of that playing is so important to teaching a kid how to respond And, and if a kid doesn't routinely respond when you call him you know when it's time to leave or you're calling him to take a bath or you're telling him you know come on i have your chicken nuggets ready when you have a kid who doesn't respond in those situations, you can't really start there. You have to back it up. So playing these fun, fun, fun little games is where you want to begin with that. And, and um, Teach Me to Play With You is a super, super guide. For, I get so much good feedback about this book, too, from parents who say, I thought I knew how to play some of these games, but reading through the instructions, the way that you have it laid out, you know, that that was that little tweak that learned from reading this game and how you play it really changed how my child could respond. You know, I didn't know, you know, whatever they say about whatever game, or I didn't play it in that way. Or I tried to play this game, and it, my kid didn't like it, but then I played it, using more of the way that you outlined in the book and then all of a sudden he played it with me he liked it better and so super 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 resource and let me just say today is uh february 26th we have a a weekend sale going on um all of our therapy manuals so that coupon code if you're on my email list you got an email about that today it's going to run through the weekend but uh Um, Get the coupon code there so you can save yourself some money on that book. All right, last strategy that I want to talk about here, and this is going to be really more appropriate for children who are not responding with all of the other strategies that we've talked about. So these would be kids, these would be your hard kids (laughs) if you're a therapist or a parent. You already know if you have a hard kid. You already know. You may be listening to these strategies and going, I do that. I try. I do everything i can it's not working what else can i try reward attention okay and so if i were in a conference a live conference live course and teaching this to therapists sometimes i'll say something like you know go all aba on him and i said that to a lady the other day and she didn't quite understand what i meant by that (laughs) she thought i was meaning referring to an aba therapist which for kids with autism that's a good idea if you're having a hard, hard time kind of getting things going, because they have such a nice way of structuring and really looking at what's rewarding and motivating and establishing and abolishing and, you know, all that terminology. But rewarding attention is really, really important for some children, especially children with significant social challenges, because, it has to be worth it to them to pay attention. And, again, some parents will say, well, it better be worth it for him to pay attention and kind of take a more um, focus on bad behavior there rather than thinking about it in terms of, hey, I've got to, I've got to really figure out what would make it most likely for him to respond and pay attention when I'm talking talking to him and look at me and want to be with me you've got to kind of flip it around so that you're doing the hard work here instead of expecting the child to do the hard work so that you are coming up with mm, what is his very favorite thing that I can use as his little reward for looking at me and again you're not going to have to do this with every single kid because Thankfully, most of the other things that we've talked about work, but for children for whom responding is so, so, so difficult, you have to set it up like this, or you're not really going to put yourself in a position to see any progress. So, let me tell you when I've used this in the past. Let's just, I had a little girl a long time ago named uh, Layla. And she was on the spectrum. She was really, really verbal. But she had a real hard time staying with people and responding to people. And she would, you know, again, want to do her own thing. She was really echolalic. But so, so, so hard to distract her and get her pulled into what you wanted her to do and including you in that. And so teaching her to respond to her name, we had to use a milkshake, And some of you therapists are cringing right now saying, I would never use um, something as, you know, poor with poor nutritional content as a vanilla milkshake from McDonald's. But let me tell you, it worked (laughs) because we would call her name and have her turn around and look and stick the milkshake in her mouth (laughs) when she did it. And she had to look at us first. And then we would say, Yay, and, you know, give her the milkshake. And so eventually, you know, she was maybe. A little far a little further away from us in the room, and we would call her name, and boy, she expected the milkshake, so she came right to us, and we didn't have to use the milkshake, you know, but gosh, two or three weeks until she was consistently responding to her name. What if you're saying, well, that's a good idea, but my child doesn't like food; he's just a picky 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 eater. You don't have to use food, use what he likes, so let's say a kid I had a little boy one time that I worked with who liked to be thrown up in the air and so that's how we taught him his name is you know call his name jordan and then as soon as he would look and a bit you know at the beginning we would be right beside him doing it and so we would look at us and then we would throw him up in the air and again some of you are thinking well he's not looking for his name he's looking for because you're going to throw him in the air yeah that's my point (laughs) okay You've got to start with what he likes and something that is worth it for him. And I promise, eventually they link it. You start to say their name and they really look at you immediately because they know that fun, fun, fun thing is coming. So you could use an edible here. You could use a movement game here. Again, you could use something as simple as high five or tickles or, you know, kids who like praise that they like you clapping for them and saying, yay. You know, there are a lot of kids like that, especially kids who have been in therapy for a while, right? So reward attention. And at the beginning, now this may get a little bit cumbersome for mom, and she may say, well, Laura, uh, just how much of my day do you want me to devote to this? And I say, how important is it for you for her to learn her name? You know, that's really up to you. How much time do you have? And so for some parents, that makes an immediate (laughs) And they say, yeah, you're right. It does, but you don't have to do the reward forever. You do want to fade it over time. But at the beginning, it really may take, you know, several weeks of being super, super, super consistent. Now, mom may not be able to do it all day, but she may practice a little bit in the morning and a little bit mid-morning, you know, if she stays home with her child or works from home or whatever she does and, you know, some in the before he goes down for a nap in the afternoon and then after he goes down and, Ad does it when he gets home. You know, so again, you can have maybe 30, 40 opportunities for practicing their name. And it's a a not responding to your name is, again, a core deficit for the majority of children with autism, especially when we first begin to work with them. So rewarding attention is a big, big, big Part of helping a child learn his or her name when other more naturalistic methods have not worked. So if you try that and if you have some results that you want to share with me (laughs) or share with us here on the podcast, I'd love, love, love to have that feedback. So remember those seven tips. Let's run through them one more time. The things that you can do to help a child learn how to respond. Get down on his or her level. Place yourself where the kid's most likely to look at you. Give the kid a reason to look at you. You're going to make yourself fun and exciting to look at and sound, and you've got to sound fun too. Do what he likes so that he's more likely to want to be with you. Emphasize interaction. Prioritize that goal above everything else, no matter what you're doing throughout the day. Number six, play, 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 play. And when you're sick of all that, play some more. (laughs) And lastly, reward attention. Reward his efforts. Remember, if it were easy for the child, he would have already been doing it. So for some of those for some children for whom the first six things don't work, I promise, try number seven and it will make all the difference in the world. I hope. <laughs> Most of the time anyway, that's been my experience. All right, thanks so much for joining me for today's show. Next week we're gonna move on to skill number three and I hope you'll join me then. Have a great week. Bye bye.